Let's pray. Father, your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We pray that by your spirit, you would, through your word, give us light now. Wake us up from our drowsiness, from our sleepiness, from our contentment with idols in our lives, in our hearts. We pray that you would shine the light of your word on us and our lives. We might have eyes to see who you are, who we are, who Christ our mediator is. So might glorify you in our life together as a church. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. What happens when Christianity collides with culture? When heaven hits the world? When Christ comes into contact with idols? Like pouring vinegar on baking soda, Christianity always causes some kind of reaction wherever it goes. From its beginnings, Christianity starts fizzing in the oldest corner of the world. Palestine, nestled between some of the oldest and largest civilizations, they're a small religious sect, Christianity, of a small religious sect, Judaism, starts changing people's worship, starts causing riots, even starts changing local and global politics. It radiates out to the Roman Empire, becoming the official religion in the fourth century. Christianity in this state-sponsored form would shape the West for the next 1,500 years. You can't study Western history without studying the impact Christianity had on almost every ruler, movement, war, colonial endeavor, and culture. If you're studying at a college today, you'll probably hear much about the way Christianity has been used to oppress, to enslave, to colonize, all for the profit of a rich and powerful class who didn't really believe the Bible, reinterpreted it, and maybe even changed it. While there's a kernel of truth there, whether it was used rightly or wrongly, even secular professors will admit and study how Christianity impacts society. Christianity has been taken from the West to distant people and cultures who couldn't think and act more differently from the teachings of the Bible. John Payton brought Christianity to the New Hebrides, a little island chain of cannibals in the South Pacific. Though they'd never heard of the Ten Commandments, they seemed to try and break every single one. As Payton preached, their first reaction was to try and murder him. But eventually, they substituted grass skirts for Peyton's Scottish shirts, murder for debate, and cannibalism for the Lord's Supper. Christianity's even impacted already Christian places. We call this revival. In the 1730s and 40s, sleepy colonial towns were forced to go to church every Sunday and listen to unconverted preachers talk about this or that from the Bible or from 
their opinions are from something else. Then, all of a sudden, a few fiery preachers started preaching about the glory of God, the need for new birth, the dangers of hell, the importance of personal piety. People feared for their soul. Huge numbers changed their lives. And whole towns started to look different. Biblical Christianity started to bump up and impact cultural Christianity. What happened when Christianity started to push back against some decisions and policies that started to roll out in the spring of 2020? Time will tell exactly what the effects were, but among the countless opinions and shouting tribes, Christianity seemed to have something to say in light of government shutdowns and deaths and riots. What about your family? What effect has Christianity had on the people who live in your house, the people in your family tree? I wonder if you can trace any major splits in lifestyles, career choices, and even just personalities by looking at the people who share your name. What about you? What kind of impact has Christianity had on your life? How has it shaped your thinking? How have people claiming to speak for Christianity shaped your worldview? How has personal study of the Bible changed your outlook? How has this community, this church, Millwood, impacted your life? How has Christ, through His Spirit, shaped your heart, changed your thinking, changed the trajectory of your life, maybe even your eternity? What happens when Christianity collides with the world. That, in part, is what the whole book of Acts has been showing. Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts shows us what happens in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Christianity is met in Jerusalem with conflict. Christians are driven from the temple. Stephen is stoned to death. Many Jews aren't receptive to the message of Christianity, and over and over again, they keep being put out of the synagogues. Though some Jews believe, many don't. Then Christianity comes into contact with Samaritans, Greeks, and other Gentiles. We've seen individuals converted as we've been studying Acts. We've seen Paul and Barnabas have great success in Lystra and Thessalonica, and even here in Ephesus, where he is in Acts 19. Many believe, turn from witchcraft, and start worshiping the true God. Last week, we saw Paul invited to preach at Athens, the Areopagus, the, the Harvard Supreme Court of the day. He's met with some resistance, but still, he's getting to proclaim Christ on kind of the world's biggest stage. Here in our passage this morning, we'll start to see stiffer resistance from the Gentiles. Up to this point in Acts, a majority of the resistance and persecutions come from the Jews. Now the book's going to transition, and Christianity is going to be on trial in the court of the Gentiles. So the story of this riot here in Ephesus is a big hinge, a turning point in the book. It's the first stiff resistance to the spread of the gospel from the Gentiles themselves. What effect 
does Christianity have when it collides with culture? What happens when the waves of Christianity come up to the shores of pagan cultures like that in Ephesus? We'll answer that with three points this morning. The first is that Christianity exposes idols. Christianity exposes idols. When it confronts a culture, it exposes their idols. Paul's been preaching in Ephesus for two years. Ephesus is a major city in Asia, in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. It's on the West Coast. In Ephesus, this major cultural center, this major economic town, there's a temple to the goddess Artemis. She's the god of the city. She defends it. She blesses it. And she demands its worship. And worship her they do. They build one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in order to do so. This temple is massive, bigger than anything else in the Greek world. One poet at the time said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marbles lost their brilliance. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. Artemis is the center of life in Ephesus. She's their glory. She's their God. But she's a false god, an idol. That's the claim of Christianity, that Artemis is no god but an idol. Christianity exposes Artemis for what she really is. And Christianity exposes the Ephesians for what they really are, idolaters. Martin Luther defines an idol as whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. That is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. In other words, whatever you trust in, whatever you hope in, whatever your heart clings to, wherever you run, whatever you ultimately love above all else, that is your God. And if it's not the one true God, it is an idol. And idolatry is no small matter. Idolatry breaks the first and great commandment. In Exodus 20, after saving Israel, God's giving them the law, and the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then Deuteronomy 6, explaining and even expanding on that command, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Christianity is the worship of this one true God. To substitute the worship of this God for anything or anyone else is idolatry. And this is what mankind has done. Christianity begins with the confession that there is one true God, the creator of heavens and earth. And this God is infinite in his goodness, holiness, and glory. And he's therefore also worthy of 
and even demands our worship. God made us to be worshipers, to be in religious fellowship with Him. That's our ultimate purpose. It's our ultimate good. But Christianity also says that we've turned away from that good purpose and have all of us become idolaters. We've turned from worshiping the creature, the creator, to worshiping something in creation. Have you ever thought about that? We really only have two options for worship. We can either worship, praise, love, and live for the creator, or we can worship some lesser thing, something in his creation. And that's what we've all done. We've rejected God and said, I'm going to treat something in creation, something real or something imaginary, something good or something bad. I'm going to make that thing ultimate in my life, the ultimate object of everything I live for. Christianity begins by exposing us all for what we are, idolaters. That's what Paul's been telling the Ephesians. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. Paul's been saying, gods made with hands are not gods. Paul's been telling these Artemis worshipers that the little silver statues they worship, even the huge temple they have, the image of Artemis inside, this is fake, rebellious idolatry. Now it seems like Demetrius might not have liked this very much. But notice he only starts to protest now. After a ton of people start believing Paul and turn away from worshiping Artemis, Demetrius realizes something. If everyone stops worshiping Artemis, I'm going to go out of business. So now Demetrius starts to act. Now Demetrius exposes his real idol. Demetrius sat around while Paul was going around preaching against Artemis for two years. Once it starts impacting his wallet, Demetrius stands up to defend what he loves most, what he's built his life around, what he lives for. It's not Artemis. It's money. Demetrius, the idol maker, has a bigger idol than Artemis. He worships money. Offend this God, and he gets upset. Take away this from his life, and he gets angry. Look at verses 24 and 25. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. Notice all the economic language that this story starts out with. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Artemis hasn't even crossed his mind yet. His first priority, his first love is his wealth. And Christianity is exposing this. It's exposing this both in the truth it's proclaiming and the reality that it's making everyone in Ephesus aware of. And it's also exposing this in Christian's lifestyle. As Christianity grows, as more people become Christians, their way of life becomes more and more evident. It's 
bumping up against more and more people, people like Demetrius. And it's impacting their culture, their lives, their idol. People don't like having their idol exposed. They don't like having them challenged. Certainly don't like having them taken away. Christianity doesn't just expose bad, greedy idol makers. It exposes us all. It tells us that we're all by nature idolaters. And you might be sitting there thinking, I'm not an idolater. I grew up in the church. I've always agreed with the Bible about who God is. And I want for a second for you just to think about your life. Think about what you've been most passionate about. What have you sacrificed for? What have you devoted most of your time to? Has it always been the Lord? When were you the most angry in your whole life? What made you the most angry in the last couple weeks? Has it only ever been the profaning of true worship of the true God that's made you angry? Can you really say that you're like Jesus? The only thing that's made you angry is when people were worshiping God wrongly and oppressing fellow image bearers? Or are you like me? Have you been angry with someone else when they've insulted you? Have you been angry when someone took up a little too much of your time? When you didn't get your way? Have you been angry when God took away something that you really loved? Has it stung when God's word exposed you? When he tells us we're not as good as we like to think we are? That's what Christianity does. It tells us we're not so good. We're sinful idolaters. And that truth stings. It shakes us up. It stirs up not only anger, but confusion, desperation, all sorts of other thoughts. In Ephesus, it stirs them into a mad rage showing that idolatry makes people crazy. Idolatry of Artemis, of money, yourself, makes you crazy. It turns the world upside down. It turns your thinking upside down. It's exchanging truth for a lie, the worship of the creature instead of the worship of the creator. Idolatry is craziness that makes people crazy. Turn with me to Exodus 32. Turn with me for a minute to Exodus 32. God's just given the people the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, as we just heard. You shall not make any graven images, any idols to worship them. That's the second commandment. What do the people do when Moses goes back up the mountain to receive more commandments and takes a little bit too long coming back down? They turn from Moses, God's appointed man. They turn from God and his clear command. They gather all their valuable gold and make an idol. Golden calf. Look at verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offering and brought peace offering. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. 
They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel's gone mad. They've become mad cows themselves, worshipping a little golden cow, sacrificing to it, having a feast, celebrating with games and revelry. This isn't well thought out. It's chaos. Rather than allowing God to shepherd them as sheep, they've become mad cows. How crazy is this reaction to God's rescue from Egypt? Idolatry makes you crazy. The lives of the Ephesians may have seemed ordinary, they were crazy. Imagine you're an Ephesian. You're a craftsman. You have a nice little shop, a nice little family, in the beautiful Mediterranean countryside. Every morning you say a prayer to your little statue of Artemis you have in your house. Pray for your family. Pray for your work. You hope that today you'll exemplify the virtuous Greek life. You're prudent, just, temperate, and courageous. In other words, you think clearly, you're fair, you don't overindulge, and you're brave. It's a virtuous life. That's what you're aiming. Then you head out to chop some wood to make some tools. That's your job. You make tools that people like Demetrius use to make idols, just like the one in your house. You cut a tree. You take a break to look at the gorgeous rolling hills. Look over at the massive, perfect temple of Artemis. Your life seems wonderful. You finish carving a piece of wood into a handle for a chisel when a neighbor comes running to you. He tells you about the protest Demetrius is starting. Your prophets have been down the last couple of months, so you go. Demetrius starts talking about the way. And all the people who have turned to the way and have stopped buying idols. And he reminds you about what the people of the way have been saying. That Artemis isn't real. That there's one true God. That you're living a lie. That you're living in rebellion. That you insult him every day. You remember that part of their message. But you also remember the rest of it. That that true God has sent his son to forgive you for your rebellion and make you a true worshiper. The God you've been insulting your whole life has offered you forgiveness and reconciliation. Then you remember that money's getting a bit tight. It's making it hard for you to be quite so virtuous. It's been causing arguments with your wife. Sometimes you're not so honest about your business. How do you respond to this good news of the gospel? The forgiveness and reconciliation God's offering you? And you start to hear shouts in the crowd. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You start to join him. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But in your mind, the chant starts to morph. Great is Artemis. Great are the Ephesians. Great is our money. 
Great are we. Great am I. Great am I. Someone tries to stand up to say something, but you just shout louder. Great is Artemis. The gospel has confronted your culture. It's exposed your idols. It's shed light on your heart. You don't like it. It hurts. It makes you crazy. Or rather, it really exposes that you already were crazy. The light of the truth, the light of the gospel, doesn't make these idolaters crazy. It removes their mask of sanity. Turn again with me to Isaiah 44. There God reminds us just how foolish idolatry is. Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns over the in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right? People living in idolatry can't see it. They're blind. Crazy. Anyone who's heard the gospel has had their idol confronted. It's had light shine on a dark place they hadn't thought about or really wanted to hide. 
anyone who's heard of the gospel has had their sanity tested and their foolishness revealed. All our idols are just as foolish as falling down before a tiny wooden statue. Wherever the gospel goes, it confronts idols and stirs things up. It might stir up a riot. It might just stir up your heart. It might make you question everything. How will you respond? How will you respond? That brings us to our second point this morning. Look at the Ephesians' response. Not their immediate response, but what eventually happens after the riot. What's their long-term response? They're finally able to be calmed down by a clerk in verse 35. They know him. He's important in their city. He cares about their jobs. He cares about Artemis. He reminds them that if they keep this up, if they take these two Christians and do something stupid, then Roman centurions might come in and charge them with rioting. They might come in and put their foot down. Then your jobs will really be messed up. Then your life will really be thrown off. And besides, he says, were these Christians really saying anything too bad about Artemis herself? Maybe they just weren't happy about the little statue. If they're in the wrong, take it up with the courts. Just don't bring Rome in. Whatever is true or false about this clerk's argument, he's successful. He calms the crowd down. He dismisses the assembly. And that's it. Our Ephesian friend, the handle maker, he goes back home. That was a crazy day. What happens next is just as crazy. But it's not quite as obvious. He keeps trying to pursue the virtuous life. He keeps trying to make a living for his family. He forgets about the chaos of that day. He forgets about the saying from Paul, God's made without, with hands are not God. That Jesus is the true God and the only way of forgiveness for true virtue, for eternal life. He forgets all that. The Ephesians are confronted with the way, Christianity. Their idols were exposed. They don't like that. They're whipped into a frenzy. And then a terrifying thing happens. Things calm down and go back to the way they were. Things with their industry probably turn out okay. Things with their lives probably turn out just fine. But their last state is actually worse than the first. They've hardened in their sin, their rebellion, and their idolatry. They've heard the good news of the gospel. They've felt the sting of the law. They've felt the providential kindness of God exposing their wealth, their idol of wealth. And they've gone right back to the way things were. They go on the rest of their lives thinking things are going to turn out okay as they keep worshiping idols, as they keep serving their real idols, wealth and self and comfort and self-righteous piety and virtue. And the result is that they stroll calmly towards hell. They mistake calm for peace. They mistake calm for peace. They're mistaken. Just because things have gone back to normal doesn't mean things are okay. 
Just because the riots ended, the economy's stabilized, Rome hasn't come in, doesn't mean things are okay. Their souls are still in peril. They're still in their sin. They mistake calm for peace. Romans 2, 4, and 5 says this. Maybe as Paul's writing Romans, he's thinking of these people. But that's speculation. Romans 2, 4, and 5 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? Do you assume that because things are going okay, your relationship with God is okay? God blessed the Ephesians with economic prosperity, the peace of Rome, beautiful countryside, skill in their work, fulfillment in their jobs, family. But that's no sign that they're in a right state with Him. Millwood, don't mistake calm with peace with God. Don't let pleasant things in this world make you think that God's blessed you spiritually. Don't pacify your conscience with worldly blessings. Don't excuse sin, idolatry, greed, anger, pride, by saying, well, the things in my life are still working out just fine. Don't cover your sin with anything but the blood of Christ. If truth from God's word stirs things up, if the law does its work and makes you feel guilty about something, if your conscience is pricked when you sin, don't just wait. Don't just wait for those feelings to pass. If you shake up a snow globe, there's a, a whirlwind in that globe, a storm. You can barely see the tiny little house inside. But slowly the snow starts to fall. Things go right back to the way they were. It's easier to wait for things to blow over than it is to repent of sin. It's easier to just wait for a situation to change than it is to repent of grumbling about that situation. It's easier to wait for a rebellious child to grow out of one stage than to repent grow in your parenting, and pursue your child lovingly with the gospel. It's easier to wait for a conservative to come into office than it is to repent of idolizing politics and being in constant worry about what's happening in D.C. It's easier to wait for this one eruption of my greed, lust, my anger, idolatry, to just blow over. It's easier to do that than to confess, apologize, do the hard work daily putting sin to death by the Spirit. Although it's easier, though it's easier to wait for circumstances to change, it leaves those sins in your heart to fester and grow. It leaves them to become more and more subtle, harder and harder to see. It leaves them to come to dominate your life and your thinking, your life's purpose, what you work towards. And all under the surface, maybe even under the pretext of piety. 
when sin comes to light, do you put your hands over your ears and shout to yourself about how good you are, how religious you are, all while not intending to ever change? Do you try and drown out reality and just wait for things to blow over? Don't mistake passing time for repentance. Don't mistake calm for peace with God, for holiness. If God's shaken up your conscience, there's one thing to do. Repent and trust in Christ. Don't wait for the snow to settle so that things can go back to the way things were. While the guilt is stirred up, run to Christ. Pray that things wouldn't go back to the way they were. Plead that he'd remove whatever idol is controlling you and replace it with himself. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died for rebellious idolaters. He went to the cross to pay in full for their idolatry. He rose from the grave to become the object of their worship, their true worship. And he sent his spirit to change them, change us. He sent his spirit to keep us from going back to the way things were, to make us like him, holy, free from our sin and our idolatry, to turn our world right side up. Sin, idolatry, makes us crazy. And Christ, by his spirit, sets things right. He sets us right. He helps us to see the world as it truly is. He helps us to see that he alone is God. And he makes us true worshipers with true and holy love, with genuine spirit-given faith. We become right side up, rational image bearers. Christ's kingdom, his way, peers upside down to the world, but is truly right side up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Blessed are those who count weak, sinful people around them as better than themselves. Blessed are those willing to die and give up everything to follow Jesus. Blessed are those who prize holiness, communion with the unseen God above all. Blessed are those who say, I don't want things to go back to the way they were. I don't want to go back to idolatry. I'll lose comfort, praise, ease. I'll take suffering and humility and sacrifice so long as I have Christ. That doesn't make sense to Greek virtue. It doesn't make sense to the American dream. It doesn't make sense to the secular left. It doesn't make sense to cultural Christianity that masks idolatry with piety like the Ephesians do. But it makes sense if we've been set straight if we've been redeemed from our craziness, if we see that we're creatures, image bearers of the holy God, redeemed by his Son and promised eternal life in him. If God's stirring up conviction of sin, turn from it today. Seek forgiveness and help in Christ. Whether you've been a Christian for years or you've never trusted in Christ, we all have idols we love. All of us, from the least to the greatest, are called to turn from our idols and trust in Christ. And that brings us to our third point this morning. As we're called to live alongside an idolatrous culture, 
what's the role of, a, of the church? What's our role as those who have turned from idols to the living God? What's the role of the church? Christianity exposes the world's idols. The world's common terrifying response is to go back to their idols. And now third, what is the church to do in that world that clings to their idols? We live in a culture no less idolatrous than Ephesus. The gods of LGBTQ plus have the power to whip people into a craze. The technique of the Ephesians, drowning out arguments by shouting, sadly all too common today. The god of comfort, success, and greed takes another technique from the Ephesians. They like to mask their god with piety and virtue. We like to do the same. Hard work and freedom become masks for greed and autonomy. Church, we aren't beyond falling prey to these and other idols of the surrounding culture. We need to heed the warning of Galatians 6. And as we see others sin, keep watching ourselves lest we too be tempted. We're always being called from idol makers to drift from the Bible, from what the Bible says about men and women, about the goodness and truth of gender. We're always being drawn to bow down to the idol of sex. We're always being lulled to sleep by the God of mammon, money, that tells us just a little bit more and then we'll be comfortable. We aren't beyond temptation to our culture's idols. The church in Ephesus, after all, is the receiver of one of the warning letters in Revelation 2, to lose their lampstand. If an apostolic church can lose their lampstand, so too can we. So how are we to keep watch? How are we to navigate the cultural waters that tempt us to join in, that tempt us to withdraw, as we heard last week? We're tempted to pick up worldly weapons and fight. The church is to proclaim the gospel and trust in the providence of God. The church is to proclaim the gospel and trust in the providence of God. That's what we see the church in Ephesus do. And while there's more to be said about cultural engagement, political involvement, and social transformation, the church is most fundamentally called to proclaim the gospel and trust in the providence of God. Gospel proclamation, preaching, teaching, evangelizing, that's what Paul and the other Christians have been doing in Ephesus for two years. Look back up before our passage in chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. This riot is the fruit of two years of daily reasoning with all the people of Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus and everyone in Asia that's passing through. We, too, must commit to the faithful proclamation of the word. God's called us, commanded us to gather weekly, to come together every Sunday and boldly, clearly preach the gospel. It's the foolishness of preaching that God uses to shape us and to keep us. It's gathering together to read, to hear, to sing, to pray, and to preach God's word that's his chosen instrument of working in this world, of calling people out of their idolatry and into the church. It's our ordinary work of coming to church, participating in worship, taking the Lord's Supper together as a display of our unity 
and love. It's this simple, ordinary, seemingly foolish work that God's blessed and called us to. Church, what we're doing right now, what we're doing this morning, is more important than anything the wisest activists can come up with. We're called to proclaim the gospel together and to proclaim it individually to our neighbors, friends, families, in our homes, at work, through verbal evangelism, and through holy lives that support the gospel we preach. What our Ephesian craftsman friend needs isn't for Artemis worship to be outlawed. He needs someone to come sit with him, tell him the gospel, expose the idols of his heart, point him to Christ and pray for him until God gives him a new heart. It's gospel proclamation that shines light on our idols, exposing them for what they truly are. And it's gospel proclamation that shines the spotlight on Christ, revealing who he truly is. It's gospel proclamation that helps us to see him as worthy and reminds us daily and weekly that he is worthy. He's worth not senseless rioting, but joyful, rational, reasonable, heartfelt, gathered worship. He is worthy. We're called to proclaim the gospel, and in doing so, we trust the providence of God. Who's the hero in Acts 19? How does the riot get resolved? Who saves these two Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus? Who gets the glory? In Acts, we've seen Peter boldly stand and preach and proclaim Christ's call for repentance. We've seen Stephen do the same and get stoned for it. We've seen the angel of the Lord swoop in and free Peter from prison. But this riot just ends. Luke makes sure even to mention that Paul's held back from saving the day. This, what a great opportunity for Paul to rush in and preach the gospel and convert the whole crowd. But he's held back. The clerk just dismisses everyone. But what's already been established in Acts is that God is powerfully working in every situation. God who gathered together Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do exactly what his hand and his plan predestined to take place. It's God who brings and saves the church from every trial and acts. Sometimes he uses Peter, sometimes Paul, and it's no different here. God providentially saves these two Christians and preserves his church through this clerk's secular speech and the crowd's fear of Rome. The church doesn't have to fear, doesn't have to get worked up, doesn't have to shout back at the crowds. The church has a prayerful trust in the sovereign God of the universe, the true God who's unchanging, immovable, not made by hands. Christians of all people can be the most calm under the worst conditions. Make that song, Be Still My Soul, the song of your life, of your heart in hard times. Christians can be the most calm under the worst conditions 
because the God we worship cannot be threatened. Poke at any other idol, start to mess with any God that can be moved, taken away, changed, and idolaters will get upset. We have a confidence because the object of our worship, the true rock who's come down from heaven, the God who's not made with hands but has eternal life in himself, who dwells not in a temple, fills the whole heavens and earth. He cannot be moved. In the face of a culture that's panicking, shouting, clinging to idols, worldly things that all will one day disappear, we have confidence. We have truth. We have sanity. We have promises from the true unchanging God who's pledged his love for us, church, in Christ. As John ends his first epistle, reminding them, he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. When Christianity confronts the pagan world, it exposes its idols. The world often responds by covering their ears and clinging to idols. But the church worships. The church gathers to proclaim the gospel, goes out into the world to do the same, and trusts that God will work. That he'll accomplish all his purposes in the church and in the world. That he will reign forever. Let's pray. Father God, you are true. You have revealed yourself truly and fully in your word, in the incarnate word, your son. You, Lord, are able to keep us from idols and grant true worship so that you would be glorified in our lives and our life together as a church. We pray that you would keep us from idols. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.